So welcome to our new course, Beyond Right, the values that shape Judaism's civil code. And looking forward to taking this journey together for the next six weeks as we explore different values in Judaism and Jewish law and understand it from all perspectives. So just as an introduction, as we know, today we're going to talk about beyond good neighbors. But before that, we know that every legal system reflects the values of its creators. The way the society perceives the values, whatever it may be, whether it's liberty, autonomy, personal responsibility, are all expressed in the laws of its country. So, for example, to take in contrast Western civilization or Western countries and democracies under the freedoms, there are different types of freedoms or values that are within America, United States of America, while many European countries are also considered democracies, but their emphasis is different. While in the United States, the emphasis is a greater focus on the individual freedom, in European countries, the, the, the democracy or the freedom depends more on the concept of equality. As we look into the, the Declaration of Independence, uses the terminology life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and so on, which reflects each person's individual freedom. While in European countries it's more about equality and we're the way it expresses is that the very fact that you look in the United States, the democracy or the concept is the result is that the European countries have more type of welfare type of programs than the United States. For example, whether it's healthcare, whether it's uh, all other types of pensions and things like that, where they talk about the level of equality. In fact, the French, uh, the French uh, motto or the national motto is liberté, Egalité, if I pronounce it correctly, a fraternité, which means liberty, equality, fraternity, equality is one of the basic premises. It also had an effect on people's, on countries and the decisions that they made in the past two years when it came to COVID. While the United States was less lax in the restrictions that it did, in other countries they absolutely locked down the country. Canada today, you still can't leave unless it's for some type of an emergency or you can't come back unless you're vaccinated. The concept of the um, equality, making that all people are the same. It wasn't about the individual freedom. It was more about making sure that everybody is equal. And these values are often shaped basically by history or historical experiences. And if we look at it in the U.S., for example, freedom of speech is a very protected right and even has, hate, yeah, even has that hate speech is permitted as long as there's no immediate threat to harm. In Europe, for example, there are stronger limits on hate speech. So, for example, in America, and in the cases that you want to mention is, first of all, Brandenburg versus Ohio. In 1969, the Supreme Court held that the government cannot punish inflammatory speech as long as it was not a direct cause to an inciting or producing immediate or imminent lawlessness. The same idea, while on the other hand, while in England... Or in other countries, especially, for example, in Germany, just mentioning the fact that you believe in uh, Hitler or whatever it may be, it can cause a person to be arrested. So you see the concepts of the limitations are much stronger. In the U.S., another thing we find, for example, the value of freedom of religion is understood in a very strict way to the extent of separation of church and state. For example, the government 
is therefore not even allowed to provide funding for any private school that is a religious entity. In Europe, in contrast, it's the opposite. They do provide funding for religious institutions. Not only that, England, which is a so-called democracy, has an official state religion. Israel. Israel has an official state religion. France has an, I don't think France has, but England does have an official state. Spain has an official state religion. And the way they look at it is different. That means the difference between separation in church and state, the way it's viewed in the U.S. and the way it's viewed in Europe. Separation of church and state means that there's freedom of religion, that government should be free of religion, while in France or in other countries, they look at it as the, no, there should be no government in the religion, while in, in uh, I'm sorry, there should be no religion in government, while in America it's no government in the religion, the way they look at it. And this is basically based, usually, apparently, it's, it's historical. The founding fathers of the U.S. experienced government restrictions on their freedom of speech or religion, and therefore they created a strong laws that protect those values of your, those those values. While European countries, who were coming off what happened was with the Holocaust, fascism, and all that type of stuff, and therefore their hate speech and their uh, liberties on that level are much stricter and more limited. So, if we look at every legal system, is shaped by values, underlying values, and this is especially pronounced when we talk about Jewish law. Jewish law, and as we will explore in this course. Are we going to look at that these God-given laws that we have are based on Jewish values, and we will learn how these Jewish values are expressed in the legal setting. And from each one of these classes, we will derive guidance, not only in the laws of the way they are, in how they're taught and how they're learned, but also in how they apply in our professional and personal lives. And today we're going to focus on the question of what was the, on the, on the purpose of the law. What is the, what is the reason of the law? What's behind the law? What is the law seeking to achieve? So, in general, when we talk about rules and laws, there are different types of rules and laws. There are different types of people that talk about rules and laws. What would you say the difference between a coach or a referee were to be when it comes to a type of law? I'm sorry, I fell behind the slides here. So, when we talk about a society's values are expressed in its laws, and therefore especially pronounced in the case of Jewish law here. So what is the law seeking to achieve? What is the law? What's the purpose of the law? So let's examine for a moment, and we'll look at modern law, and then we'll take it back to Jewish law. The Declaration of the Rights of Man that were drafted by Emmanuel, Sarius, and Marcus de Lafayette, which went with consultation with Thomas Jefferson and was approved by the National Assembly of France in 1789, was a declaration of a core statement which was the values of the French Revolution and had a major impact on the development of popular conception of what it means liberty and democracy in today's day and age, and in Europe and worldwide. And in that declaration of rights, it says what the function of the law is. Text number one on page four says as follows. Liberty consists in the freedom to do everything which injures to no one else, hence the exercise of, of the national rights of each man has no limits except those which assure to the other members of society the enjoyment of the same rights. These limits can only be determined by law. Law can only prohibit such actions as are hurtful to society, nothing may be prevented which is not forbidden by law, 
and no one may be forced to do anything that's not provided by law. U.S. The Declaration of Independence has a similar function of what it means in government, that to secure the rights the governments are instituted among men. Uh, the Declaration tells us, basically, what we see from here is, the secular law perceives its purpose as, number one, to protect the rights of the individual. That as long as I'm not hurting you, and as long as I'm not bothering you, as long as I have the right to do something, I can do my desires, my goals, there's no limits to it. As long as I have the right to do it, you cannot stop me from doing it. So if we look at what's the role of the declaration of law from a secular perspective, is to determine that because I can do whatever I want, and what happens when I do whatever I want, it can cause conflict, it can cause an upheaval, it can cause people to fight with one another because everybody wants to do what they want. So law basically says you can do whatever you want as long as it's not bothering somebody else. As long as you're not hurting somebody else, as long as you're not infringing on somebody else. As what was the very common saying? The popular saying was, your liberty, you have the liberty to swing your fist up until my nose. Your liberty ends where my nose begins. Right? I think that's the saying. What does that mean? Huh? Okay, it's this a popular. Your liberty ends where my nose begins. What does that mean? Saying clearly that you can do whatever you want. That means secular law is about the moment that every person has the right to liberty and therefore it has to maintain public order and therefore it says law means that we are going to make sure that you can do what you want as long as you're allowed to. Now let's learn, look at Torah law. What does the Torah perceive itself as the laws? Now we're not going to talk about today for the, for the purpose of this discussion. We are not talking about the Torah's laws pertaining God and man. Because those laws are based on religion, those are vis-a-vis God, those are laws of kosher, Shabbos, Tfilin, and so on. What we're going to look at today are laws that the Torah talks about interpersonal relationships, interpersonal conduct, civil and criminal law. And immediately after the Ten Commandments, after in the book of Exodus, after God gives the Jewish people the Ten Commandments, what does God say? God tells us, these are the laws that I place before you. And if you look at the laws that are placed before the Jewish people, what are they? God is telling the Jewish people laws, which are criminal and civil laws, ethics and values. And the question that many ask, why is God giving Jewish people laws which are in the realm of interpersonal conduct? There are for centuries that have been people that have been studying laws and let the people decide how they want to get along with one another. If God wants to give us laws, that's about having a relationship with God. Let's have, those are the laws about it in the Ten Commandments. But even if you look in the Ten Commandments, five of the commandments have nothing to do with God, so to speak. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Don't be jealous. Why is God giving us laws which are seemingly civil or criminal matters? Why can't a human being just get together, formulate laws like have been done in Western societies, in Europe, in the United States, and in other countries, and so on, where they created laws? Even more so, if you want to put it differently, what's Jewish about Jewish law? What's Jewish about the fact that God tells us that we're in any civil law? Pay back, pay a person on time, don't cheat, whatever it may be. What's Jewish about it? Why is it specifically a Jewish law? And the Abarbanel puts it this way. The Abarbanel was a very wealthy statesman 
was born in Lisbon, Portugal. He had to escape from Spain and run away from the different inquisitions at the time. It is even claimed that at one point, the Abarbanel was willing to give a large sum of money to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella to allow the Jews to stay in Spain, but they wouldn't accept it. But eventually, he ran off and settled in Italy. And he is a commentator on the Torah and the Talmud in many different cases. And the Abarbanel says as follows. Text number two. Every human society requires laws. What is the advantage of God's Torahs, Torah laws over the legal system set up by other nations? Why does the verse state that these are the laws that you shall set before them? Thereby telling us that these laws are unique, divine system exclusively given to us by God. The reason is that the divine laws contain elements absent from other legal systems. God's laws are based on the principle of compassion and goodness. And over here, the Barbanel lays down the absolute difference between secular law and Jewish law. What is it telling us? These system of criminal laws, these laws that I'm about to tell you, that are for the Jewish people, have a very big difference between them and every other law. These laws are not about civil and just criminal laws, but they're about compassion and goodness. Because the, the premise of Jewish law is based on compassion and goodness. As we can see in text number three. Text number three, the underlying principle of Jewish law is as follows. Diligently observe God's commandments that he commanded you. Do what is right in God's eyes. Torah law doesn't see its purpose as just protecting people's individual rights. Torah law doesn't look at it it's just to make sure that people don't hit each other. Just to make sure everybody gets along. The Torah views its laws about telling you what to do. It's about compassionate and goodness. Take for example, what's the difference between a coach and a referee? A referee is on the field, he's watching the game happen, and he makes sure that every single player plays by the rules. But you can do whatever you want in the game as long as you play by the rules. The moment you injure somebody, the referee calls you out on that injury. Or the moment you go out of bounds, he'll call you out that you went against the law. But does he care within the law how you did it? Absolutely not. As long as you stick to the game. As long as you stick to the rules. On the other hand, what is the coach? The coach also wants the players to keep within the rules. But the coach gives them tact. Gives them a process. Energizes them. Shows them the way how to play the game. What to do within the game. Secular laws like the referee. You got to make sure you protect everybody stays safe. Everybody has their freedoms. Everybody has their rights. Let's make sure they have their rights. Jewish law on the other hand is the coach. Which makes sure guides each person to be able to excel. And to bring out the best that they have within themselves. Within the rules. And even being not it's not about what you're getting. It's about what, you, what is right. What is the right thing to be done? Not what are your rights, but what is the right thing to do? God isn't the referee, and the Torah isn't the rule book. God is the coach, and the Torah is the playbook. God isn't satisfied by the very fact that, oh, well, I did the right thing. God isn't just satisfied in saying, you know what? Just because you're right, it doesn't mean that you're correct. Just because you're right, it doesn't mean you're doing the right thing. And therefore, I want it's a concept of compassionate and goodness. So if we were to summarize it, the difference between the Torah and the secular world, or God's law and secular law, secular law regulates society to keep within the rules, while God's law guides society to excel and do the right thing. If you want to put it in one line, 
secular law is about what is the right thing to do. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Jewish law is what is the right thing to do, while secular law is more about am I violating anyone's rights. And this is the first and fundamental concept when it comes to Jewish law. This is the mission statement in Jewish law. It's not about if I'm doing the right... It's not about... Did I hurt somebody else? Did I make sure somebody else? Am I doing the right thing? Is this the proper way to go about it? In the words of the previous Rebbe, he put it this way in text number four. There are two types of laws. Laws that create life and laws created by life. Human laws are created by life. God's Torah is the divine law that creates life. Remember, how did humans come about making laws? was because, as we mentioned, historically they have lived through things and therefore they made certain laws. They saw what caused humanity to destroy one another and therefore they set laws. While God is the, the Torah is the blueprint of the world and therefore God set the laws and that's what the way we live by it. Secular law is man-made and therefore shaped by the life's human experiences. And because of that, it regulates society, it makes sure that everybody is doing the right thing and therefore puts every person in the right box. And therefore you will notice that does everybody go to law school? No. When it comes to secular law, yes, there's a big majority. I think U.S. has a big percentage of lawyers, but it is only certain people that study legal law. And if you have a question, you contact the legal scholar and they explain to you what the law may be. On the other hand, when it comes to Jewish law, first of all, it creates life. Even more so, it shapes society as a whole. And for that reason, you walk into a yeshiva and a little student in the sixth grade is studying Talmud, is studying Jewish law. Why? Because they're not studying the law necessarily to know the practical application of how they're going to apply it in their day-to-day -day life. They're learning the law because it applies already in the life, it guides their life, it shapes their life in the values that are taught in the law. It's not about knowing the law, it's about studying the law, following the law, knowing that this is what is right thing to do. And therefore it's studied by every single person equally. And every single person studies the law in hoping and generating that type of interest and that type of value system that they shall live by. And therefore today and over the next six weeks, hopefully we will be able to get a taste of these laws and generate these values, these expressions, and these guidance that the Torah gives us in our life. So now that we understand the difference between Jewish law versus secular law, where the background of the law comes about, we're going to look at today four different case studies, and those case studies will help us understand and achieve what is the difference, as we can see, the law and the spirit between secular law versus Jewish law. The four case studies are found on page 8, and we'll go through them one at a time. Being that they're case studies, well, uh, and they're long, so I'll have somebody else read them. Does anybody want to take a shot at it? Sure. Sherman, you want to start with the first case study? Okay. Nicholas Young considered himself a lucky man. A German who immigrated to the United States in 1848, Young had worked hard to carve out a living for himself and eventually prosper as the owner of a mortuary in San Francisco. The business allowed him and wife Rosina to purchase a modest lot on the top of California Street Hill where they built a quaint cottage-style home 
and planted a beautiful garden. Every day, California sunlight and fresh air would stream in through their windows. Young had no reason to believe that anything could interrupt his idyllic life, or that any one person could somehow deprive him of the beautiful days he had worked so hard to enjoy. But Young also had an account for Charles Crocker, a very rich and very petty man who would eventually become both his neighbor and the bane of his existence. At six feet tall and 300 pounds, Charles Crocker cut an imposing figure. He had filled his bank account by being one of the, quote, big four, end quote, barons behind the building of the Central Pacific Railroad. By the 1870s, he could afford whatever he desired, and what he wanted to, and what he wanted was to loom over San Francisco like a gargoyle. Crocker and his wealthy partners began scouting California Street Hill for its scenic views and proximity to the city's financial district. Soon a group of wealthy men, including Crocker, were buying up all the homes on their chosen blocks. By the time Crocker was finished, he had erected a 12,000-square-foot mansion. With its new wealthy inhabitants, California Street Hill was renamed to Knob Hill. As the project neared completion in 1876, there was one nagging detail. On the northeast corner of the block, Nicholas Young was reluctant to sell. His cottage was dwarfed by the mansions going up, but he had come to enjoy the neighborhood. With one or both men causing acrimony, the end result was that Young was not moving. At a report cost of $3,000, Crocker had his workers construct a wooden fence on his land that towered over three sides of Young's home. With its 40-foot-tall panels, the enclosure acted like a window shape blotting out the sun and cool air and immersing young in darkness. So the question we have over here, Kaysay, just to summarize what the case was, there's a fellow by the name of Mr. Young. He had a small house on a fancy neighborhood block, and all the wealthy people wanted him to move because his house was, worth, you want to call it, a sore thumb for them. And therefore, one of the big wealthy men built, a, built this big, massive fence that that fence would basically block the sunlight block everything from the small little house. The question that we have over here is, should Charles Crocker's fence be allowed to stand? The fence is on his property, not on Young's property, but what it's doing is blocking the sunlight and the view from Young's property. I'm sure this is a case that I think happens in Florida a lot. One guy builds up a, builds a skyscraper with you have ocean views, sells all the condos. As soon as all the condos are sold, puts up another skyscraper right in front of those and sells those for ocean view. What did he just do? He just blocked the ocean view from all the people that were there. This is a little different over here. It was purposely built to be able to block this person's sunlight. But again, it's on Crocker's property. It's not on Young's property. Case study B is a less. Rachel maintains a lot, just a page 11. Rachel maintains a large and beautiful flower bed in her yard, but one day her neighbor Joe built a large wooden fence between their properties and the cast of shade over the garden, causing the flowers to die. When Rachel asked Joe why his fence needed to be so high, she was told that it was necessary to protect the birds from cats entering the property. Rachel offered to replace the wooden fence with a glass screen at her personal expense in order to allow the flowers to receive sunlight without Joe's birds to danger. But Joe refused to allow Rachel to replace the fence without offering any reason. So over here we have another case, two neighbors. Rachel has flowers. Joe has a big fence. And he put the fence because he doesn't want the animals going away. So she said, I pay to put up a glass screen so I can get the sunlight. It protects your animals and everybody's happy. Joe refused. Should, we first, should Joe be required by law 
to allow Rachel to replace his fence. She was going to pay for it. He wasn't going to have any loss of money from it. Should Joe be allowed? Should we force Joe to make Rachel pay for the fence? Case number C. Michael moved into a new house before setting up his own Wi-Fi connection. He realized that his neighbors have an open Wi-Fi network. This is a very common case. I'm sure you all know this case already. So the question very sure, can you use your neighbor's Wi-Fi? And, <laughs> talking about using your neighbor's Wi-Fi, have you heard the story about the fellow, this kid has to go to his great-grandfather's funeral. So he's in the cemetery, bored stiff, and he's looking around and he's trying to get Wi-Fi on his phone. So he goes over to the rabbi and he says, hey, Rabbi, you come here a lot. Do you know the uh, Wi-Fi password? The rabbi gets furious and looks at him. Have you no respect for the dead? The kid looks it up and, is that in all capitals? <laughs> Case number study, t- t- number D. Sarah's next door, David, left on a lengthy vacation. It is difficult to find parking on their street. And David's driveway, situated smack in between their two homes, is now empty. Sarah wishes to park her car there while the neighbor's away. Can I park my car in a driveway? My neighbor's not there. I don't have to worry about them coming. I'm not blocking traffic. They have access to their home. Can I park my car in their driveway while they're not home? Just out of curiosity, if I go through all the four cases, let me just go back. Should Charles Crocker be allowed to, t- should be allowed to keep his fence? Who says he has to take off? By a raise of hands, who says he should take off his fence? He, that he has to, we should force him to take down the fence? It's uh, it's on, even though it's on his own property? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go. But Oh, okay, we'll get to that. Case number B. Should Joe be required to allow Rachel to uh, put a glass screen instead of her, or he, or he says, no, I don't have to let you put the glass screen? He shouldn't have. Okay. This one I'm sure you all know, so are you allowed to use your friend's Wi-Fi? Without his knowledge, yes. Without his knowledge, okay. Okay. Case number D. Should Sarah be allowed to park in David's driveway while he's gone? Okay. But so, you know, Rabbi, just say one thing. You know, the fight over building large buildings and blocking off the sunlight is so frequently an argument of Manhattan, particularly around Central Park, where the people are always building larger and larger buildings and they're always complaining that they're blotting out the sun for Central Park. And in Florida as well. Yes, in Florida as well. Yeah. Especially where people have views and everything else. There's also another question where, as we, as we get to that case, when we talk about it, there's another question as well, is not only in Central Park and in those places a bigger problem, is that if a person builds in a bigger building and they have windows, they see into my apartment. And one last place which is closer, in the Hamptons, they have that issue too. Somewhere. About light. About light. People build the mansions and so forth. But well, what about the person seeing into another person's window? I don't know about that. Because that... Huh? Then put no, but the very fact that if it's higher, it, it becomes, in, in halacha, there's a concept of that, hezekriah, and we'll get to that in a moment. But before we get to our cases, here's just a little quick video about Jewish law. If God created the universe in six days, it's 
serpent, it did not take 40 days for God to hand Moses two stone tablets. So what was Moses doing up there all that time? He was internalizing a vast body of instruction to transmit to his people. So once the smoke and sounds of Sinai subsided, Moses began to teach, and the Jews were most surprised. They'd expected Moses to begin with a detailed series of highly spiritual rituals or meditations, matters that Moses had to go up to heaven to receive. Instead, Moses first launched into topics far closer to earth than to heaven. He rolled out a unique civil system with requirements unlike any other. Here are a handful of surprising examples. The finder of a lost item must proactively collect or secure the item and then preserve it while actively seeking its rightful owner. Beyond that and defamation, the Torah even forbids gossip among friends. It requires an individual not only to rescue those being harmed, but to act preemptively. It makes it illegal to look the other way when a fellow traveler is hopelessly stuck along the roadside. It mandates respect for the elderly. It criminalizes the malicious delivery of bad advice. It illegalizes the verbal abuse of individuals whose disabilities prevent them from recognizing the abuse. But surely the Jews challenged Moses. God prefers spiritual worship instead of looking out for stranded traitors and fallen bracelets. Ah, replied Moses, I will soon instruct you in Judaism's rituals and festivals, but you must know that these civil laws are also spiritual. You see, God's goal is not for you to transcend the earth, but to change it and make it more heavenly. You will notice that the Torah's legislation is more than a guide to protecting rights and maintaining social order. No, these laws include mechanisms for molding a righteous civilization. From now on, each of you is legally obligated to do the right thing for those around you and to proactively extend yourself in the pursuit of good and righteous conduct. With that, Moses and the Jews launched into a spirited study of Jewish civil practice and its aspirations of a righteous society, a study that flourishes until today. So as you've seen very clearly, that the Torah tells us about certain laws, examples of laws that are largely absent from secular law. So for example, the Torah tells us, don't stand by when someone's life's at risk. We know in secular law, there may be a responsibility to protect it from the Good Samaritan law, but you have no obligation to go and help somebody. For example, provide roadside assistance. There's no obligation to help a person when you see them stuck on the side of the road. It's very nice of you if you do it. There's no obligation. According to the Torah, if you see a person laden with a package, you have to help them to unload it until they're able to continue traveling. For example, another one, don't spread gossip. In secular law, I am not allowed to slander somebody. I am not allowed to defame them, but I'm allowed to gossip. Isn't that what most of the newspapers are all about? Huh? Yeah. So what we see over here is the very fact that the Torah have laws in the Jewish system, and that are very prominent, that are very, in fact, most of the laws in the Jewish system, love your fellow as yourself, whatever it may be, these are laws that are obligatory. Honor their, your parents. 
In secular law, there's something called emancipation. Somebody can leave their parents, right? They have no obligation. But Jewish law mandates certain civil laws. Why is that? Because what the Torah is telling over here is, is something, if we take a look at what we've said in the Torah's words in text number 3. And in text number 3, we use the terminology, diligently, diligently observe God's commandments, that he commanded you, do what is right in God's eyes. While in secular law, these things are considered moral conduct, ethical values, morals, but they're not law. You can't take somebody to court because of it. Because Jewish law is based on compassion and goodness. Jewish law is about doing the right thing. While secular law, as we mentioned, is about protecting the person's rights. And therefore, when we look at Jewish law, it defines in precise detail and instructs us how to do the right thing. But you'll see something very interesting. The Torah, when it tells us about observing God's commandments, the Torah is split up into two. The verse that tells it to us is split up into two. The verse says, first of all, observe God's commandments. And then after it says, observe God's commandments, it says, do what is good and righteous in God's eyes. You can see that in text number three again. If you look back in text number three, which was on page uh, six, it starts off, diligently observe God's commandments, and then continues and says, do what is right in God's eyes. Why does the Torah separate the two, but at the same time have it in the same verse? Nachmanides explains the following. Text number 5. Page 13. Our sages expounded on the verse and explained that it instructs us to go beyond the letter of the law. In other words, the Torah first exhorts us to observe all the commandments. And it now instructs us to be careful to do that what is right and good. Even when not explicitly commanded to do so. Because God cherishes good and proper conduct. This instruction... It's very important because if it would be impossible for the Torah to exhaustively address all our conducts with our friends and neighbors, all of our world business affairs and the welfare society in the world, instead, after offering multiple specific commandments, such as you shall not be a gossip anger, do not take revenge and bear a grudge, do not stand or shedding your fellow's blood, do not curse even a deaf person, stand in the presence of the angels, the Torah concludes with a generalized commandment that do what is right, meaning to go beyond the letter of the law. What's Nachmanides telling us? For the Torah to start telling us every single instance in how you have to behave is impossible. Why? Because each person has their own different personalities, their own different idiosyncrasies, all different ways of behaving and doing things. So what the Torah says starts off with a bunch of general type of laws. Don't stand while somebody else is being hurt. Love your fellow as yourself, whatever it may be. And then the Torah concludes by telling us, number one, you have to be able to do what is right and good. The relationship between these two parts of the, of the passage are like a body and a soul. The body is what you see on the outside. The body is what is limited to what the actual things that you see. But then there's the spirit of the law. There's the actual law, and then there's the spirit of the law. The body is what the beginning of the verse is telling us observe all commandments. But then I'm not going to start enumerating, is this the commandment, is that the commandment, because know what's going to happen? every person is going to find a loophole to be able to say, why I don't have to do it in this time. We're going to find a reason why this is an excuse why I don't have to do it. So therefore, what does the Torah say? The Torah concludes and says, do what is right and good. What does it mean to do what is right and good? Even though I didn't, even though I didn't specifically 
prescribe and say this is what you should or should not do, ask yourself the question, is this the right thing? Is this in the spirit of the law? Should I be doing it or not? Sometimes, just because the Torah didn't clearly state, I'm not allowed to do it, doesn't mean that I'm not allowed to do it. Or because the Torah didn't say do it, doesn't mean I have to do it. You have to ask, is this the right thing to do or is it not the right thing to do? Therefore, after communicating the body of the Torah, saying that you should do A, B, and C, then it tells us the soul part of the Torah, which is the interpersonal conduct that we have to have with one another, even if it's not covered in the, ex- in the explicit statutes of the law, we have to go with the spirit of the law. But then, while the spirit of the law can never be distilled into specific instructions, the sages of the Talmud did not leave it up to the personal judgment of every individual, and therefore they did give some guidelines of what it means, the spirit of the law. And they chose to make their practices and certain practices which are considered the spirit of the law obligatory. And not only, so we will have three different levels. You have a level which is obligatory, which states clearly in the Torah. You have a level which is obligatory from the rabbis because of the spirit of the law. And then you will have something which is called beyond the letter of the law. Something which we would call proper conduct, but not necessarily legislated. What is something that the Torah sages have made obligatory? And they said as follows. Text number six. A person is compelled by law not to act in a manner characteristic of the inhabitants of Sodom. The meaning, again, a person is, not, is compelled by law not to act in a manner that's characteristic of the inhabitants of Sodom. What are the inhabitants of the Sodom? What is a Sodom-like character? Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah that was destroyed in the times of Abraham. And Abraham asked that they should be, uh, should be spared. And God says there's nobody there that behaves properly. And therefore, the whole place was destroyed. What did they do wrong? So in the book of Genesis, when it tells us about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it really doesn't even mention what they did wrong. There was, however, the prophet Hezekiel talks about the Jewish people behaving inappropriately. And therefore, he refers back to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. But there is one word that mentions that the Torah says why God destroyed the, the, the cities of Sodom in the book of Genesis. And that word is Hakitza as the screaming that I heard from her. The commentaries explain that what happened was the people of Sodom did not allow people to have guests in their home. They were very unwelcoming to people. To the extent that if a person, they would take the guest, they would take all his money, and then they would chop him if he was too long or too short. Torturous and terrible, unbelievable things that they did. And there was one woman that was caught hiding bread in her pouch to be able to give it to a poor person. Because what happened was, they would take the poor person that would come, or the guest that would come to the city of Sodom, put him in a home, not feed him, so the guy would die from hunger. They realized that this poor guy that came was around still for a while. So they realized somebody must be feeding him. And they saw this woman that was this young girl that was going to feed this poor person. And they took this woman and they tortured her and they killed her for feeding the poor person. For doing something kind and helping somebody else. So while there were many other terrible atrocities that the people of Sodom did, the reason why they were killed and why they were destroyed was because of their um, behaviors that they did not take care of one another. 
But the Talmud and ethics of our fathers gives us a certain type of codifying of what it means, the people of Sodom. And it says as follows, text number 7a. One who insists, chapter 5, of, this is chapter 5 of Ethics of Our Fathers, text number 7a, page 16. One who insists, what is mine is mine, what is yours is yours, is an average character. However, another opinion maintains that such an attitude is characteristic of the wicked people of Sodom. Now, the Mishnah seems very puzzling here. How can we such a such sharp disagreement? Are you an average guy? Or you're the people of Sodom? The people of Sodom are no average. They are murderers. They are people that are, have no feelings for others. They are people that are people of Sodom, as you can imagine. How can you be compared to the wicked people of Sodom at the same time be called an average person? So are you an average character? Or you're the people of Sodom? And it's not like, you know, it's a big difference, big contrast here. One is absolutely wicked. And why is it if I say what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours is wicked? I understand he's no saint. It may be a little selfish. But why is that the people of Sodom? Isn't he acting within my rights? It's mine. It's not yours. So why is that the people of Sodom? So the Me'iri, one of the commentators on the Talmud says as follows. Both statements in the Mishnah are valid. Because the second view, text number 7b, which classifies such conduct as wicked, refers to those who refuse to permit others to benefit from them, even when they will incur no personal or monetary expense. As a result, such conduct is characteristic of the inhabitants of Sodom. By contrast, the first view of the Mishnah, which classifies, <clears throat> which classifies such conduct as average, refers to those who refuse to allow others to benefit from them when doing so would come to a personal monetary expense. Individuals who adopt this approach cannot be compared to the inhabitants of Sodom because they seek simply to avoid incurring losses through their actions of others. Just as they would not inflict upon others their fellow, this indeed reflects average character. The Me'iri explains something very simple. What's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. One that is just worried about, one that says, you know, I'm not going to let you use it even though I have nothing to lose from it. In the language of the Talmud, it's called Zenene Vizelo Chaser. This person is having enjoying it and you have absolutely no loss from it. If you have no loss from that person using your item, or whatever it may be, or from the event, that's spiteful, and that's called wicked from the people of Sodom. But if you have a loss, that means the reason why you're not going to give others benefit is because you have a personal loss. There we don't compel you to lose money to help somebody else. So that's the average person. The average person doesn't want to lose money to be able to help somebody else. He, I don't mind the other guy using it, but as long as there's no loss to me. That means you're within your rights, the Mishnah says, that a person can stand on his rights as long as he has no loss. But if you're not, ha- but if you're not having a loss from it, and you still don't allow the other person to have from it, then already that's the, that's the type of people of Sodom. When we talk about this, as an ethical principle, this is something everybody appreciates. But this is not just an ethical principle. According to Judaism, Judaism doesn't allow, or Jewish law does not say this is in the realm of ethics, but this is law. That means the, the, the Talmud discusses a case, for example, if let's say 
I have a home, you spoke about cell night. If I have a home, I build a home. And my neighbor wants to build a second story on his home. And because of him building the second story on his home, it's going to block my sunlight. Now going back in Talmudic times, blocking sunlight meant I was living in the dark. There was no electricity. And even today, like you mentioned, there are people that still have the complaint, I want to have sunlight. So my neighbor is not allowed to build a second story if it's going to block my sunlight. I say it's his property, he can build what he wants. No, if it's going to have a direct loss on me, he's not allowed to do so. But what happens if my neighbor says, you know what? I'm going to build a tall window in your home so you will have sunlight and will not disturb your sunlight. I'll pay for it. But the other guy says, no, 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 you can't, I'm not doing it. I don't want a window. Then the Talmud says, then we allow the neighbor to build a second story. Why? Because the other guy, you are not going to lose anything. He offered you to build a window. You didn't want. That means you had nothing to lose, only to gain. And you are just refusing. Therefore, we no longer say, it's his property, he can do what he wants. Maimonides summarizes it as follows. Text number eight. A person who has windows set in the lower portion of the wall of his house and his neighbor desires to erect a building that would block them. The neighbor's purpose to solve the problem is by installing new windows in the upper portion of the homeowner's wall. If this arrangement won't cause the homeowner any difficulty at all and would not require him to leave his home during the construction, he cannot prevent the new neighbor from performing this construction. The homeowner is compelled by law to allow the neighbor to close the windows on the bottom part of the wall and create new windows higher up. This is because it would be Sodom-like conduct for the homeowner to refuse this accommodation. The principle applies to every situation in which an individual will benefit while his fellow will not lose anything as a result. In all such cases, the relevant party is compelled by law to cooperate. So we're not talking about a level of ethics. This is by law that I can force that a person. And there's other cases. For example, if a neighbor wants to sell a property and the first person that should have the right to the property is a neighboring person or if he's using a boundary that he's not losing any money off it. All these cases, we can force a person because of the law, you're not losing anything. And over here, you were given the choice. And if you don't want to take that, then you can lose from it. Yes. So, there is, so that means there's a loss besides the sunlight. So the question is, with the question is going to become that the Talmud talks about, is a view considered a loss? I'll tell you even more so. The Talmud views the concept, and this is a whole discussion in the Talmud, the Talmudic debate, if it's called Hezek Riyash Mei Hezek. If let's say, because you now have a second floor window looking at my property, I am worried about the evil law. You're going to see what I'm planting. I'm not going to be able to sunbathe. Is that considered damage? And that in itself is a debate if you is considered damage or not. I, if I'm not mistaken, in secular law, view is not considered damage. If you put up a building here, and I think you can see it in Florida, I think I remember once I went, and one day there's a building over here, the next developer puts up a building right in front of it, and now they no longer have ocean views. And even though they sold it as ocean views, he says, I sold it as ocean views. My problem that that guy burnt and built another building in front of it. So, what? I don't know. We have to ask the lawyer. I don't know. They think it's called the right of That's an ear rights. That's something else. And that is a, that's, something, that's something else actually in the actual, um, when we get to the 
case of the building the spike wall, we'll talk about that, why the wall is built and how built all the wall can build. And every state has a different, California, New York, Rhode Island, all different states have different one things, but we'll get to that in a moment. But the concept about view in Jewish law, if we can compel a person to be able to take down his wall because of blocking a view, that in itself is a debate as well. Do we consider view a damage or not? So the question would be, is that considered occurring a loss? Everybody will say, if it incurs a loss, so let's say the view in that case is because the real estate property is going to go down in value, for example. So that's a loss. But if the, if the value of the property will stay the same, it's only because I like that tree in that corner, tough luck. It's because you're, you're just doing something, as we'll see. So what we see over here is that if the neighbors offered a solution, and this is the interesting thing, that I offer you a solution, and you don't want to take the solution, then you're at fault, and therefore we don't say, I have to worry about you. That means you want, we compel the neighbor to accept the solution, so to speak, therefore that the other guy should be able to build. That means it makes it clear that if the loss, but if you look at the words of the Maimonides, even if he's going to have to move out of his house, or he's going to have to incur any type of inconvenience and loss, then we say, no, 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 I can't make you have an inconvenience. You say, what's the big deal? You move out of your house for a week. Excuse me. I don't have to do it. You want me to have that inconvenience, that's something else. But to just say that there's an inconvenience and that we cannot compel a person to take an inconvenience. So now let's look back. Now that we know this principle, let's look back at our case studies. Case study B. Let's start with first case study B. Case study B, where Rachel wants to replace Joe's wooden fence with a glass screen. What's, he do, what's she doing? She's essentially putting in a new gate. Instead of a wooden gate, it's a glass gate. Is she replacing, is she replacing everything that the guy wanted? Yes. What according to Jewish law, we would force, we would compel Joe, the neighbor, to take the glass fence. Why? Because he is not losing anything from it. His animals are protected. She gets her flowers, sunlight, and everybody's happy. According to secular law, we can't compel anybody to do anything. It's my property. I can put up as many fences as I want. I don't have to make my wooden fence a glass fence. Why? Because it's my property. Even though this is a legitimate concern, even though this may be a problem, at the end of the day, it's my property. But according to Jewish law, however, Jewish law says this is a practice of Sodom for you to refuse putting up a, a glass fence, a glass wall. And therefore, we would compel you to put up the glass wall. Let's take, this in the, um, let's take this in the case number A. What about case number A? If this is true for a legitimate concern, what about an illegitimate concern? When these guys put up that 10-foot wall to block this guy's sunlight, why were they putting it up? Just to spite. They only wanted to get the guy out of the neighborhood. So therefore, they put up the wall. We will force them to take it down. Why? Because there's no use of that wall, even though the wall is on this property. Therefore, according to Jewish law, this fence never served any purpose other than to spite Nicholas Young. And therefore, it's a blatant stone, Sodom-like behavior. They only built the wall to be able to hurt the other person. And therefore, according to Jewish law, we would have to take down, he would have to take down the fence. Secular law would actually be different. Now, secular law would be as follows. In California at the time, we're going back in, in the 19th century in California, 
Crocker, despite the fact that this fence was a spite fence, it was considered legal and he was allowed to stand. However, since then, the laws have changed in many of the United States, especially in uh, California. And therefore, in most cases, there's something called a law called a spite fence, that if I put up a fence only with the only purpose is to hurt my neighbor, I am forced to take it down. Now, the size of the fence varies by state. In New York, it's 10 feet high. In California, it's 6 feet high. In Rhode Island, it can be even as low as 4 feet high, depending on the reasons why I put up the fence. The only problem is you got to prove that the reason that the person put it up was despite. So there's a case, I think it's four feet, I'll tell you the actual uh, case. Uh, I have it here. In Rhode Island, um, six feet, I'm sorry, Rhode Island's also six feet. And it has to be maliciously erected. You have to be able to pr prove that a, f uh, I'm sorry, California is the one that's the least. California is any fence, doesn't even have to be any size, there's no height restriction. Any fence in California, there's a maliciousness requirement in the status in the statute which says any fence or other structure in the nature of the fence unnecessary exceeding 10 feet in height is, is maliciously erected or maintained for the purpose of annoying the owner or occupant of the adjoining property in a private nuisance. So you have to be able to say that the fence is a nuisance and therefore you can, um, then you will be, they will be able to take it down. But at the time, in the case that we're talking about, he was not obliged to remove it. So what we see very clearly here, cases A, B, a secular law asks the question, if someone is, has a right to build, in some secular societies, the spite fence would be illegal, but non-spite fences, like Joe's wooden fence, would not be. So going back to the case of Rachel, where she asked the person to change from his fence to a glass screen, that fence uh, that was not constructed out of spite because he had a legitimate concern, which was his animals, he has no, he's under no obligation to allow Rachel to replace the fully legal fence with a glass screen. Over here we see very clearly what's the difference between Jewish law and secular law. And over here it's because in both cases it's the frame of mind. Secular law asks the question, did the fence builder have a right to build a fence? Yes or no? So in the case of the spite fence, he didn't have the right because it was in spite. In those days it wasn't, he had the right. In the case of Job that built a fence for his animals, he had 100% right. But Jewish law asks, what's the right thing to do? That means you can be in your right, so to speak, to be able to do it. But Jewish law goes further and requires people to make accommodation for a person as long as you have no loss from it. And therefore, ask yourself the question, what's the right thing to do here? If I'm not losing anything, what do I care if I put up glass screen? Why am I being so stubborn? What am I losing from it? Privacy. He didn't put it up for privacy. If his argument was privacy, that's a different story. His argument was that he put it up that the animals shouldn't get out. If there would be a concern of privacy, you would be correct. Yes? So if, they put, if, if uh, he put up the fence for privacy, not talking about the then it would be a difference, correct. So, it would not only, according to Jewish law, we cannot compel him to change the fence. Uh, in Jewish law, it's not a question of her objecting. 
In Jewish law, well, that means we compel a person to follow that he should not be a Sodom character. And so let's say, let's take an example. He put up a fence around his pool. Now a pool where everybody would agree is for privacy. And that pool fence is blocking your flowers. She can, we would not compel him to change the fence. Why? Because he didn't put the fence just to have a barrier. He put the fence up because he specifically wants to block out the view. And if it's on his rights, if it's on his property, and he's not hurting anything on their property, he has the right to do it. But that's on her property. His property, he has the right to do it. It doesn't matter because that's on my property. I'm being harmed if I can't have privacy. So I have the right to my property to do what I can, regardless if it's going to hurt somebody else. And we'll soon, we'll get to the next one. Now let's go to here's even a big greater uh, one that we talk about. So until now we discussed compelling a person to remove a fence on a property that may harm somebody else for no justifiable reason. But Jewish law takes the principle of Sodom-like conduct even further. That even if another person comes onto someone else's property without advance permission and without paying any compensation, what would be the case? A squatter. Let's see, text number nine. You might be surprised about this one. If one lives in his fellow's yard without the latter's knowledge, does he have to pay him rent or not? The question in regard to a yard that is not on the market for rent, but the squatter is a person who usually rents. What is the law? Can the squatter say to the owner, what loss have I caused you? Or perhaps the owner can insist, look, you have benefit from my property instead of paying rent elsewhere. This is a case which one individual benefits while the other does not lose anything. The Talmud concludes, Rabbah the son of Baruna stated, my father ruled in the name of Rav that the squatter does not have to pay rent. Now what's going on over here? The logic in this case would seem the same as we spoke about in text number 8. We're talking about very clearly. The house is not on the market. It's not like, you know, in New York City where there's a squatter, comes into the house, and all of a sudden you have to wait two years to be able to get the guy out and whatever it may be. We're talking about the house is not on the market. This is... The person has been living there. Didn't bother you. You knew they were there. Actually, today, if you, if you stay there for 10 years, they can claim the property. That's it. Yeah, by the way, I'm talking about, but let's say that he's, and we're soon going to see. Let's and then, and then the, uh, the owner. Okay, so now we're going to soon see about that. So what we're talking about, the guy's there, and all of a sudden you wake up one day and you say, I want rent for the past three months that you've been living in my backyard. Over here, the Talmud says, Jewish law says, for these past three months, it was a win-win situation. Or a win-no-loss situation, let's say. He slept there. You didn't bother him. It didn't bother you. You can't collect rent from it. But let's look at this case a little closer. And when we analyze this case a little closer, we have to ask ourselves, what happens now? Can the squatter stay there for no rent? Or the moment that I object, he has to leave. What happens now? Now, if you look at the halachic consensus here is that the moment I object to him staying there, what happens? I already now consider it a loss because I don't want somebody in my backyard. So it's a loss. And therefore, from the time that I object, the squatter then will then be obligated to pay me rent. But for the first three months that he was there, I cannot collect rent because I never objected. 
Text number 10. We only compel the property owner, the Tosfus, which is a commentary in the Talmud explains, we only compel the property owner not to conduct himself like the inhabitants of Stone regarding the past. The squatter who resided on his property without paying rent is not compelled to pay him rent for the past. At the same time, it is clear that the property owner has the right to protest the squatter's present and need not permit the squatter to remain on his property. Tosfus tells us very clearly from the Talmud we see the use of the property in the past, that was legal. Legal meaning, he never objected. Now once he objects, all of a sudden, the future, now you've got to get out of here. Or if you're going to stay there, you've got to pay rent. Why? Because the person already objected. Now the interesting thing over here is, what about the squatter? Is he allowed to go legally into somebody else's property and wait until the guy objects? Now, of course, we're not talking about Jewish law. Jewish law, you've got to follow the laws of the land. I mean, I'm sorry, legal, secular law. And even according to Jewish law, you can't go trespassing. You have to follow the laws of the land. But technically speaking, from a Jewish law perspective, a squatter, a person, can legally trespass, if you want to call it, pitch a tent in your backyard, as long as I'm not incurring your loss. I'm not getting in the way. I'm not taking, stopping the lawnmower from going. I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong to you. You're not losing anything from it. If I pitch a tent in your backyard, you have no loss from it whatsoever, legally, I can go there until you object. The moment you object, I got to get out of there or pay your rent. Now the question is, why over here, why is an unauthorized, yes? For what reason would he, if he wasn't doing anything at all, why would he then object? Oh, what if he decided, I don't want this guy here anymore? No, oh, that's what we're going to ask. So the question over here is, our question is, why is the case of an unauthorized use of property treated differently? Why all of a sudden, if he objects, why do we tell him, why are you objecting? Don't be a Saddam guy. Let the guy stay there. Why all of a sudden do we say, if he objects, he has to leave and pay rent, and we don't call him a Saddam character? And here is an interesting re- re- response from Rav Shimon Shkup. Reb Shimon Shkup was a scholar in the, in the 1900s, just about a, over 100 years ago. He was called Shimon Shkup because he was born in Shkup, which is modern-day Belarus. He was a student of Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, and he says as follows. A very famous analytical Talmudist says as follows. In my opinion, the reason Tosfus rules that property owner cannot be actively compelled to allow the squatter on his property is because compulsion in such an instance would be a forcible negation of the property owner's control over his own property. Most people would object to this. The failure of an individual to consent to something that most people would object to cannot be considered stone-like conduct. However, the squatter's presence on the property without the owner's knowledge doesn't negate the owner's control of the property because the owner retains the right to evict the squatter of any time. What makes your house yours? The fact that I can lock the door and tell you you can't come in. What makes my house, my, my property mine, that I have a gate and say, this is my area, you can't come on here. If you infringe on my property, if you infringe uh, that you decide to park yourself, and I object to it, that's a loss. Because that means I don't have autonomy, I don't have authority on my property. So Rav Shimonshkov comes along and explains and says, the reason why in this case is different, why we allow the owner to object, and it's not considered a stone-like character, is because 
it loses its autonomy, and if it loses its autonomy, that's considered a loss, and it's something which is done against his will, therefore we don't compel him to do it. Because property, by definition, means that you're the owner of it, that you can decide who can be there and who can't. That's why as long as you don't know that the person was there, and you didn't object, so therefore, according to Jewish law, you can't charge rent for them, because you have the right always to tell the guy to go. The moment I take away from you that ability to tell somebody to get off your property, then that's already a loss. That means I'm not fully ownership. What we see over here is that Rabbi Shkap, what over here he's telling us is the consideration only rule comes to a case to when the person says clearly, I object to the person being here. But the squatter is not legally barred from moving in without the owner's knowledge. That means he can move there. He can move there until he's told to get out. And the moment he gets out, then he has to pay the rent and whatever it may be. And he's not, and therefore we can, and therefore the owner can't be compelled to allow the squatter to stay there and occupy the property against his will. Now let's go back to cases C and D. Now let's apply our principles to the using somebody else's Wi-Fi and parking on somebody else's driveway without permission. Now that we know about using somebody else, going somebody else's property, and so on. As we mentioned, we always have to obey the laws of the land. So if the law of the land is no trespassing, it doesn't mean that you can go and say, hey, you have no laws, let me put your tent and then move into your backyard, and therefore say so you have to follow what the Torah tells me, and so on and so forth. If the, Torah is, if the law of the land is no trespassing, whatever it may be, is you have to follow. Now when it comes to using somebody else's Wi-Fi, I'll let you know that there is no law about it. Because there was no Wi-Fi. <laughs> so in 1986, I think, they tried making a law about Wi-Fi, if I'm not mistaken. And they've not passed a law concerning Wi-Fi. The only law in that... In America? In America. Well, the problem is Wi-Fi goes off the person's property. So if it's off their property, if it's just in the air... But it gets to your property by air, it's in your property. So you're federal law... So here's the, uh, there's no uniform federal law about it. There is, I'm sorry, I have to be corrected. The law is that it is a misdemeanor. To, in New York, it's a misdemeanor to use somebody else's Wi-Fi, but the crime is so rampant, or therefore they don't prosecute or police never enforce it. And but there is... No, we're going to talk about one sec. So, let, so what, let's just, interesting, secular law about the Wi-Fi. So number one, at first, it was no Wi-Fi law. 1986 was the first time they enacted a law about Wi-Fi. 1986, which is interesting. But it was before Wi-Fi became prevalent. And at that time, the, war, the law was talking about access and authorization into other people's property. And it was only if you were stealing material property from the access and authorization that you used the stolen Wi-Fi. But if you did not take anything because of it, you just used the Wi-Fi, then technically there was no law against it. What about if you connect to somebody's Wi-Fi Wi-Fi is still your... Oh, one second. Your oh, that, oh, that's already stealing. No, but they're connected to your Wi-Fi. <laughs> it gets complicated, right? <laughs> so the, the problem in Florida, in Florida there was a case where a person was forced to pay a small fine for stealing his neighbor's Wi-Fi. In New York, unauthorized use of computer network is considered a misdemeanor, and regulations are rarely enforced. But let's go back to the concept of Wi-Fi according to Jewish law. So now, nowadays, Wi-Fi connections... You're not paying per gigabyte. 
So that's very important. That means you're not paying more based on the amount of Wi-Fi you're taking. It used to be Wi-Fi connection on the internet, the amount of downloads or uploads that you would use, that's what you got paid. Today, you get a certain, I think it's two gigabytes, whatever you get, of upload, of time, and if you have a T1 connection, it used to be, you used to get more. But the bottom line is, because of somebody else using your Wi-Fi, you're not paying extra because of it. What could happen because of using somebody else's Wi-Fi? Your Wi-Fi can slow down. If there's too many people on the network, Seth can tell you, right? If there's too many people on the network, it's going to slow down the Wi-Fi. So am I allowed to use somebody else's Wi-Fi? Therefore, according to Jewish law, unauthorized Wi-Fi usage, if it's going to affect my neighbor's Wi-Fi, meaning that because of that, his Wi-Fi is going to go slower, then I shouldn't be allowed to. Why? Because I'm incurring the personal loss. But however, if the neighbor's not home, he comes home only at night, and you're working at home, and therefore you want to use your neighbor's Wi-Fi, technically speaking, he's not losing anything from it. There's no material loss that he's getting from it. There's no loss at all that he's getting from it. Assuming that you didn't steal his password, and I'll get, get, I'll get to a password in just a moment, like you mentioned, then I, there's nothing wrong with using the other person's Wi-Fi. However, there are some that want to say the very fact that the person made his password password protected, what's he saying? I'm objecting to you to use it. And what did we learn before that if a person objects somebody to be on his property, I can compel them and say it's your property. I'm if. So if the Wi-Fi is open and there's no username and password, that means he's leaving it open to the public, then you have no problem. You're allowed to use it, especially when he's not home because he's not incurring any loss. If there's a password and it's protected, then you're incurring a loss, the person objects to you using his Wi-Fi, then there could be a problem. Now, if you went and outsmarted and overrode the password, then you got another problem because now you might be even a question of intruding of going into the person's property and stealing private information. Like you said, you're taking the phone and because of that, it's already now considered uh, taking if other... If you connect to my Wi-Fi, yeah. It still so both it's stealing. But you connected to Doesn't matter, but because he's stealing, that's why. So you're not allowed to steal from the other person. Either way, you're not allowed to steal, regardless of where it is. But now let's go regarding case D. And this becomes a little more complicated. Case D, where we spoke about Michael can use Wi-Fi, definitely won't cause damage. Now case D. Can I park on somebody else's driveway without permission? While the neighbor's away, because doing so. Will it incur them any loss? Absolutely not. They're not even there. If you're going to say that, if the person can say, well, the car has oil dripping from it, then it's going to ruin the driveway. Okay. Or if you say that because he's on the driveway, he's not going to bring in his car or other things. But let's say in a scenario where I have to bring a couch into my house. And the only way I can get the couch is if I go through the other person's driveway. It's not going to fit because of the angle. According to Jewish law, I can compel my neighbor that I should be able to use his property. Why? Because there's no loss to him if I have to go through his side. If it's going to bang a wall or break a window, that's a different story. But me being on that person's uh, driveway doesn't occur to them any loss. Therefore, according to Jewish law, I should be able to do it. But what if David explicitly told Sarah, do not park your car here? Can she go regardless against his wishes? Based on the, on the principle that we mentioned before, he said no. 
Therefore, he objects to her being there. Therefore, you would say he's not allowed to. You know, there was once a story this guy is in Tel Aviv and he sees a bunch of cars parked and there's a big no parking sign. So he goes over to the cop that's sitting there and he asks the cop, am I allowed to park here? So he says, can you read the sign? It says, you're not allowed to park here. So he asks the cop, what about all these other cars that are parked here? He says, they didn't ask. So on one hand, one can say, the intrusion on the property is very minimal, and therefore it's just a car sitting in the driveway. What do you care? There's no loss. On the other hand, one can argue and say the very fact that he said no, and the very fact that you go back and forth, back and forth into the driveway, that's compromising my ownership, because my ownership means that I, can't, I, I can tell you can be there, so therefore I should not let you. So the question over here is, as we look in secular law, deals with this differently, and in this case, Secular law says one's entitled to stand on their rights regardless of whether it's the right thing to do. And therefore, according to secular law, such a case, we cannot compel a person not to act like the people of the Sodom. And therefore, if I have a protected interest, whether it's my driveway or my Wi-Fi or anything of that sort, I can tell you that you cannot be there in whatsoever in this case. So we see again clearly, secular law is telling me in this case, I am entitled to stand, it's my rights, it's my place, while according to Jewish law, we're going to look at what's the right thing to do. And in this case, if you're not going to be there, your driveway's going to be empty, what's the right thing to do? Allow the person to park there. You're not going to incur a loss. Can I stop the person if I feel that it's going to make a damage? Yes. But if it's not going to make a damage, the right thing according to Jewish law would be to allow them. Now here's something, another interesting case. And here we talk about a recommended conduct. And here's a story from the Talmud, a very fascinating story. The story is as follows. Text number 10. Rabbi Barchana, barrel of wine, was negligently broken by the porters. He hired to transport it. Rabbi seized the porters' cloaks as payment for the damage. The porters complained to Rav, who instructed Rabbi, Give them back their cloaks. Rabbi asked, is that the law? Rav replied, yes, as stated in the verse, in order that you follow the path of good people. Rabbi returned the porter's cloaks. The porters complained further to Rav. We are poor and we are labored all day. Now we are hungry and have nothing to eat. Rav told Rabbi, pay them their wages. Rabbi asked, is that the law? Rav responded, yes, stated the verse and observe the ways of the righteous. So what's going on over here? Look at this case. Rabba asks a fellow to deliver the wine. The guy breaks the barrel of wine. He didn't do the job and he caused loss. He goes and takes their coats because he has to get payment for his wine that was ruined. He comes to Rav and Rav says, give them back the coat. So the porters have the chutzpah to say, we worked the whole day, we didn't get paid. What does Rav say? Pay them. So imagine you have a mover that you hire and everything he damages and then wants to get paid for moving. <laughs> What's going on over here? Why did he, why did he cause Rabbah to pay? Why did he tell Rabbah to pay? They botched the job. And over here, Rabbah was being told something else. A good and righteous person 
should sustain a loss even at the expense of others. Meaning, what Rav was telling, telling Rabbah is, you're right. Technically, maybe you don't have to pay them. Being the letter of the law, you don't have to pay them. But because of you are a great person, you are a holy person, you are a righteous person, and therefore you have to behave beyond the letter of the law. A good and righteous person, as he quotes the verse of Proverbs, you should follow the path of good people. That you should be willing to sustain some personal loss in order to help another person. And such behavior is not necessarily obligatory. You can consider it morally obligatory, but legally speaking, it's not required. Legally speaking, he could have said he could have got out of it. But morally, he said, stand. You have to be, in Yiddish they say, you have to be a little bit greater than everybody else. And a little bit greater means that even though it means a loss, you're still going to pay the guy. That means if a person comes to your house and they didn't do the job the way you wanted, you're still going to pay them even though you know, and you're not going to nickel and dime Why? Because there's a certain level of a standard that you hold by and when you, that's considered making, if you want to call it a Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name or whatever it may be. So what are the exact parameters of this non-legal moral expectation? There is no perimeters to it. And therefore, in these cases, what the guiding principle is, as we mentioned, do what is right and what is good. Ask yourself a question. What would you want to be treated? How would you want to be treated in this case? And do the right and good thing to do, even if it means that you are going to lose out from it. So to summarize what we have over here, that we have three basic premises of Jewish law in doing what is right and what is good. And to split it up into the three ways, we have number one, obligations. Specified by the Torah clearly what a person has to do. It's obligatory. That's the law. There's no way of getting out of it. Then we have number two, where the Torah tells us it's not clearly stated in the Torah. Doing the right thing in favor of another person where you will not incur any loss. Again, it's obligatory because we don't want you behaving like a stone. Stone character means that even though I have no loss, I'm just going to be for the heck of it. I'm not going to allow him to do it. And therefore, the Torah says, doing the right thing means doing a favor for a fellow, doing something which is going to benefit the other person, even if, because you're not losing anything from it, so therefore it's obligatory. But what about doing the right thing in a favor, even when there's a loss, that is encouraged by the Torah, it's morally encouraged, it's something to act beyond the letter of the law, and therefore... It's, going to, it's something which a person should do and is encouraged that he should do. What we've seen over here is we've identified three different degrees of expression in Jewish principles of doing the right thing. Asking each ourselves in every day in our behavior and identifying how do we react to different events in our life. Are we doing it because we're merely obligated? Are we looking for the loopholes to get out of it? Or are we looking to do the right thing? Next week... We will start, we will talk about what repent, does repentance have any role in the legal system? Is restitution change the reality just because you repented? How does that help what you've taken? Next week, same time, same place. Here's just a quick recap of what we learned today. Lesson one, beyond good neighbors. One, all legal systems are shaped by their underlying values. But this is especially true of Jewish law. Two, 
While secular law views its purpose as maintaining social order by protecting individual rights, Jewish law sees its purpose as shaping society by guiding individuals to do what is right and upstanding in God's eyes. 3. Jewish law forbids spiteful conduct. Spite fences are forbidden, and people can be compelled to allow changes to their property that benefit others and come at no personal cost. 4. Certain unauthorized uses of other people's property that cause no harm to the owners are permitted by Jewish law. However, the owner generally retains the right to object. 5. When doing the right thing in favor of a fellow entails a degree of personal expense or loss, Jewish law declines to mandate, but nevertheless encourages people to adopt this praiseworthy approach. Any questions? No?